Today on a special episode, Milken Institute and Faster Cures Chairman Mike Milken and Prostate Cancer Foundation President and CEO Jonathan Simons convene three of the world's top medical researchers, Christopher Heyman of USC, Himisha Beltran of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and Felix Fang of UCSF. Joining them is Deborah Shear of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. They discuss how breakthrough treatments for prostate cancer have helped lay the groundwork for more effective COVID therapies and possible cures. Today, our topic is focused on Cancer 2020, our new cures in sight. In February of this year, when Jonathan and I returned from our medical conference in Johannesburg, I told him that I needed the PCF to look at everything that has occurred in cancer research in the last 30 to 40 years and see what would be usable to address the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's talk a little bit about what's occurred in the last six or seven months, focusing on the potential collateral damage. The number of reported diagnoses of cancer just in the United States this year, depending which cancer you're focused on, is down 20 to 40%. Cancer has not gone to sleep, but we recognize that people who've had potential life-threatening diseases elected not to go into medical centers and be diagnosed, and so we will be seeing these issues. There's also other issues that have come up and they are what's happened with medical research and the shutting down of physical research laboratories during this period of time. But at the same time throughout the world, research has gone on and once again will change the face of cancer treatment and cancer outcomes for the better. I'd like to give you just a few statistics here before I turn it over to Jonathan. The first sequencing of the human genome took more than 10 years, led by Francis Collins, and cost billions of dollars. Now, the cost of sequencing your genome cost about $200 wholesale, one-fifth of an MRI, and less than certain chest x-rays. So the cost of sequencing and determining what your issues are is now available for almost every single person, this has dramatically changed research as we know it. Computers a million times faster. Data storage costs down one billionth have allowed us to do things we could have never achieved before. Once we sequence and once we understand the mutations, we discover that cancer, a particular mutation is not related to any one area in your body. And more than 70 cancers have mutations similar to prostate cancer. And Jonathan will talk about it. And so the solutions that we are finding in prostate cancer have already shown to have applications in other forms of cancer. But one of the things I wanna stress on this panel is that many of the potential solutions and success that we are gonna have in treating COVID-19 lie in work that we have done over the years at the Prostate Cancer Foundation to try to 
reduce the death rate, and ultimately eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Jonathan will set the stage for a discovery and analysis that was done at the Prostate Cancer Foundation in 1999 on the fact that using ADT drugs, androgen deprivation therapy, results quite possibly in the prevention of the virus from going to your lungs. The clinical trial was begun a couple months ago on this issue to try to identify these drugs, which are often generic and ones that are fast acting, but only last for 30 to 40 days, can quite possibly prevent the movement to your lungs of this virus and serious side effects. There are more than 70 antiviral, anti-cytokin vaccine and other products out of the more than 500 that are on the tracker at Faster Cures, the sister organization of the Prostate Cancer Foundation. And with that, Jonathan, I'd like to turn it over to you. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. Like Mike said so elegantly, the road to curing COVID runs right through lots and lots of cancer research. Deborah Shear will talk a little bit about the VA is probably the least publicized and most important platform right now for ending COVID-19 deaths in terms of clinical trials, built on a platform of how Dr. Beltran, Dr. Fang, and I take care of cancer patients. Literally, the new precision care models for oncology are being applied in real time to treating COVID. The revolution that the human genomes brought and the momentum that's brought to cancer care and understanding how genes work and then how the software called epigenomics works from Dr. Fang, who's the vice chair of radiation oncology at the University of California, San Francisco. As a physician scientist, understanding genes has gotten deep into the software of what makes them actually active or quiet or turns them up or turns them down. Um, and Chris Heyman has taken the human genome and human genetics and done work in polygenics or polygenic risk. Misha Beltran from the Dana-Farber and Harvard Medical School, the PCF Young Investigator, has gone on to become a world leader in precision oncology. So Misha, what's precision medicine for prostate cancer. Why is it the paradigm for taking care of over 73 other forms of human cancer? Why is it transformational? And what by 2025 will cancer care even look like with all of this? Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning, everyone. It's really um, wonderful to be here. This is really a topic that is uh, near and dear to my heart because even in the last 10 years doing research in this area and taking care of patients, this has really transformed the way we think about cancer and the way we care for individuals. And I thought it would be good to just kind of step back and think about the term precision medicine because this is something we hear about a lot when we think about research, healthcare delivery. But it's really an approach that's quite simple. It's can we more precisely deliver healthcare or medicines to patients by matching the best therapy with the right patient? And by doing this, we can deliver better outcomes. And this is extending beyond our traditional factors. You know, traditionally, we think about things like the physical exam or laboratory values or radiology, pathology. Now we're taking it kind of one step further, recognizing that every individual is different. And by studying the molecular features of people and their cancers, we can make more precise or personalized uh, decisions when treating um, people diagnosed with cancer. 
A lot of precision medicine has focused on genetics or alterations in the DNA um, because we've known for many years that cancer is a genetic disease. And as Bert Vogelstein, one of our pioneers in cancer genomics, said in the 90s, that these DNA mutations or, or alterations can drive cellular multiplication, increases in tumor size, disorganization, and malignancy, the hallmarks of cancer. But despite knowing this for so many years, it really wasn't until recently that we had the capability to actually do this in real time for our patients that we're treating in the clinic. And, and the reason for this is it's really complicated. There are billions of letters in the DNA each person, we're generating massive amounts of data, and then we do the, expand this through hundreds or thousands of people, and we really re require big data scientists, computational tools to be able to have clinicians like me interpret this, and we can start to map out patterns of DNA alterations within a cancer cell by sequencing the genome, and then we can start to interpret this and figure out what is in the cancer but also can we learn where did that cancer come from? Where is it going? Similar to a subway map, uh, thinking about all the intersecting pathways that occur within a cancer cell. And this is allowing us to develop ways to intervene and treat cancer. And thanks to the Prostate Cancer Foundation, there's been over thousands of genomes already sequenced. And this has really led to changes in the way we practice and the way we treat individuals with prostate cancer with targeted drugs. Recently, the FDA approved a class of medication called PARP inhibitors, two drugs, Olaparib and Rucaparib, for a select subgroup of patients with prostate cancer based on the mutations found in the cancer's DNA. And this has made precision oncology a reality uh, for every prostate cancer patient. PARP inhibitors are one class of targeted therapies that were recently approved for prostate cancer patients, but there are a number of others in development where response is influenced based on the genomic or the molecular features of a patient and their cancer. But a key thing is you have to have your biopsy sequence, right, Misha? The precision comes in having the DNA read to match the right drug or the right treatment. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges is that as we're sequencing more genomes in cancer, and especially in prostate cancer, we focus a lot on the common alterations because we think well, those are the ones that are driving the cancer and can we develop drugs for that subset. But in prostate cancer, there are mutations that are present, not in everyone, but only a very small fraction of individuals, less than 5% of people, their tumors will harbor one of these mutations. And these have been particularly challenging to study because they're not frequent. But we do think that they're important in conferring response to therapy and may help us develop novel therapies to target even rarer subsets based on the genetic alterations in that cancer. There are patients that achieve exceptional responses to therapy. A patient, a 61-year-old with advanced prostate cancer, who had developed progression after many lines of therapy, including androgen deprivation therapy, chemotherapy, abiraterone, anti-PSMA therapy on a trial. Um, and he went on a clinical trial of ipilimumab, which you may know is an immunotherapy. Um, and that trial actually went into phase three for prostate cancer. And the trial was not positive, meaning not everyone res responded well to ipilimumab. So this drug did not get approved for prostate cancer, but this patient, my patient, had an extraordinary response. His PSA went from 72 to 1.4. His cancer nearly went away. Uh, he had a dramatic improvement in symptoms, and he ended up coming off of the drug. 
and did not require any additional treatment for almost two years. We sequenced his genome and we did not see anything that we would have expected to confer a response to this drug, things that have been associated with response to immunotherapy and other cancer types. But he did have a lot of these rare alterations. Um, and I think it's really our, uh, been our obligation as a field to really understand exceptional responders, because you can imagine that he's not the only person that would achieve a response like this to ipilimumab. But what do we actually do with this? And this is a very early concept, but we've been, as a field, thinking about novel ways to bring treatments to patients based on not just their DNA alterations, but integrating things like RNA um, and other biomarkers and thinking about treating patients without requiring the numbers needed for a large trial, but being able to cast a broad net to identify these long tail alterations and, and allocate them to specific drugs in a sort of basket trial sense for prostate cancer specifically. So this one is interesting because if you're a patient and you have a mutation that we could put you in remission for, but only 2% of prostate cancer patients have that mutation, but 7% of ovarian cancer patients have that. And 9% of breast cancer patients have that, and 14% of colon cancer patients have that. All those patients that have the targetable mutation ought to be in a basket and get the drug, not based on the anatomic, but on the genomic. And that's going to require multi-center collaboration. Deborah Shear will talk about this in the VA as a model, but it's also going to require patients that are aware that they need to know what their mutations are and where they are but we're very excited about this because these other channels of looking at these tumors also will be reduced to practice in the next five years. We need to make more drugs very specifically uh, against these new targets, uh, which we know are central to making the cancer tick. In five years, I do think that sequencing for every patient, not just with prostate cancer, but all cancers will be a rea reality. We will be using these genomic reports to make better decisions. And this is not going to replace what we do today. Um, when we see a patient, we do imaging and get pathology, but this will just help us take it again, to a much more precise or informed level. There will be broader accessibility to genomic expertise, drugs, and trials. And I think a lot of this will be due to the fact that telemedicine is really a reality now. And this is something that I predict will stay. Uh, it happened overnight uh, with COVID-19 and with the pandemic, and I think will help bring people together and be able to help us match drugs with patients in a more effective way. And the next generation of precision assays are coming. We are moving beyond DNA and technologies are moving fast. And it's not just uh, the genome now that we are going to be integrating into the clinical decisions in real time for patients beyond research. Data science is this huge and important area where we think cancer research and cancer care are going to lead. But the, the oncologist you want to take care of you is very familiar with how big data for caring for a cancer patient works. So thanks, Misha. Felix is a very special a clinician scientist and physician scientist like Misha. He leads the UCSF um, prostate cancer research program in the laboratories there, but he's a practicing radiation oncologist. I wonder, Felix, if you could start with what's happened, let's say, in the last 18 months on how, how radiation therapy, which is used to treat 47 out of 100 cancer patients, can be curative in, in uh, primary tumors or early cancer, 
but there's a revolution going on in using uh, radiation therapy to treat metastatic disease. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that and then epigenomics and why by 2025, this is going to be a central part as well in taking care of cancer patients. Absolutely. So the first part you've asked me to talk about is a revolution in radiation oncology across cancers. And uh, Jonathan, I think the word revolution is quite apt in the sense that if you look at the last two or three decades of radiation for cancer, we've always thought that radiation should be used only when cancer patients have what we call localized disease. And localized disease means confined to the area of origin. So in prostate cancer, it means prostate cancer confined to the prostate, but not onto the bones or someplace far away uh, from the prostate. But thanks to two very pivotal trials, what we now know is that patients who have a limited uh, amount of metastatic disease, uh, a a subset of these can be cured uh, with radiation therapy. And that's actually uh, paradigm changing, not only in the field of prostate cancer, but across you know, all of cancer in the sense that now we can use a treatment modality radiation that is widely available. We can extend it into a disease space, metastatic disease where it really hasn't been used. And we can't cure all patients with limited metastatic disease, but a subset of them five, seven years after treatment are free of disease. The question is, who are those patients? How do we identify them early and potentially How do we improve upon current cure rates with radiation for metastatic disease? Radiation has, for a very long time, been considered what we call a local treatment. It means that where you aim the radiation is where the radiation works. Where you don't aim the radiation, the radiation doesn't work. But we might be changing that paradigm as well. And when I say we, I mean the field. There's something called the abscopal effect. And that basically means if you treat one spot of cancer with radiation, another spot that you didn't treat may actually respond. And now what we see is that, at least for a a very small proportion of patients, radiation when given with immunotherapy might work where you don't aim it. And so I I think that, Jonathan, these are very, very interesting times, uh, times of kind of great advancement in the context of radiation oncology for cancer. And I would say that thanks to the Prostate Cancer Foundation, research advances in in, in prostate cancer are are kind of leading the way. Um, Jonathan, do you want me to touch upon anything else regarding radiation before before I switch? What is the new form of radiation that's used that's very different and very scientific for, with curative intent for oligometastatic disease? What is that, Felix? And why do the cancer cells die? Sure. And so for for many decades, when we gave radiation um, for any cancer, we would give a little bit of radiation every day over the period of many, many weeks. That was what I term conventional (coughs) radiation. Um, But over the last, uh, you know, um, few years, there's been the advent of newer forms of radiation that basically all revolve around the principle of giving very high dose radiation to a very small area. And due to advances in how we give radiation and also advances in how we can keep patients in the exact same spot you know, every day for a couple of days, we're able to give five to seven times the amount of radiation to a spot that we were you know, able to do a decade ago. Back 10, 15 years ago, 
when we used to give a little bit of radiation every day for eight weeks or so forth individually. And what we hoped was that over the eight weeks together, there would be enough damage from the radiation to the cancer to kill everything. But now within just five treatments, we can give the same radiation dose we previously gave over eight weeks that has allowed us to treat metastatic disease. And more importantly, in the era of COVID, switching, you can imagine, from a treatment that requires a patient to come to the hospital every day for eight weeks versus one that can be done in five treatments. Not only is this improving convenience and quality of life for patients by you know, reducing the number of treatments, but it's also reducing the risk that they catch COVID-19 from being in the hospital. And so all of these advances, I think, are benefiting patients in a multitude of different ways. Thanks, Felix. Teach us about epigenomics. Absolutely. I wear two hats. I'm a physician on one side like Misha, and also I'm a laboratory scientist on the other side like Misha. And so um, what I'm going to do is uh, briefly talk about the word epigenome. The genome is, as Misha mentioned, focused on DNA, and much of the field of genomics focuses on changes in the sequence of DNA or mutations or changes in uh, downstream levels of RNA. DNA is made in RNA. As Misha pointed out, there are multiple layers of data we can examine in a cancer cell. And one of these different layers is the epigenome. The epigenome is defined as chemical compounds and proteins that combine to DNA to turn genes on and off. And ultimately, this may control cellular biology as much as the genome, the DNA sequence itself. DNA and the architecture of DNA is quite complex in the sense that there are chemical modifications to DNA called you know, methylation that can make DNA more or less accessible and therefore turn genes on and off. When you look at clinical trials for prostate cancer, precision medicine, much of that precision medicine is focused on changes in the sequence of the DNA. But I think if you look over the next five to 10 years and you look at opportunities for precision medicine, those opportunities are going to arise as we understand additional layers of, of biology, including the epigenome um, in, in prostate cancer and in other cancers, uh, as we understand uh, architecture uh, of DNA and chromosomes and accessibility uh, of genes that leads to certain genes being on versus off. And so recently we did a large study where we profiled a component of the epigenome called methylation across 100 patients with metastatic prostate cancer looking at the metastases themselves. There are methyl groups, which are chemical compounds that are uh, bound to DNA at, at different spots. And in the hypermethylated subtype, they actually have more of these chemical compounds bound to more areas uh, of the DNA. Um, we don't actually quite know what it means yet in terms of all the biological processes. That's actually uh, what we and others in the laboratory are studying at this point in time. But what we do know is that patients with these hypermethylated subtypes of prostate cancer have different outcomes. And again, all these patients are patients with metastatic disease. And so the hypermethylated subtype, the, the patients with that actually do better. They have longer survival times once they're uh, diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer than the non-methylated patients. And so what we've identified through you know, comprehensive methylation profiling of metastatic prostate cancer is that there are different subtypes. And it turns out now that these different subtypes, these hypermethylated subtypes have been discovered in other cancers like brain cancers and leukemias uh, and colon cancers as well. We know that the clinical characteristics or clinical outcomes of these hypermethylated prostate cancers are different. And now we need to study them biologically 
we need to understand how to target them therapeutically. Mm -hmm. And I just want to point out that all this research was sponsored by the Prostate Cancer Foundation. Jonathan, I'll turn things back over to you. Thanks, Felix. Understanding the activity of these genes is going to be essential in actually designing drugs because we have lots of ideas all of a sudden about making precision medicines to just stop one line in particular that's making a prostate cancer and a breast cancer cell divide. But also, it may be very important to understand genes that are turned off that make you normal again. But this way of looking at a cancer patient's epigenome is going to be also how we care for every uh, form of human cancer. And um, the work that Felix presented has actually given us really a framework for many other forms of cancer. We've talked about genes in patients with advanced disease, but what if you could find cancers 10 years earlier or prevent heart disease? Well, how would you do that? Well, it's also a big data problem that's been reduced um, to research practice rather amazingly. So Chris Heyman is one of the world's leaders in population genetics or how genes work in populations for diseases. Um, and also is an enormous um, entrepreneur of scientific collaboration with over really over 100 collaborators around the world to get the numbers up um, to do this work. So what's a polygenic risk score? Why does it help explain the disproportionate burden of prostate cancer in African-Americans? And what you think is going to happen to polygenic risk scores in revolutionizing basically how doctors take care of us? Well, um, yeah, thank you to the Prostate Cancer Foundation uh, for the invitation to be part of this uh, panel. And I think Jonathan and, and you and Mike have done a good job to set the stage for some of what I'm going to be talking about, the completion of the human genome sequence and uh, human genome sequencing becoming affordable. So we've really learned a tremendous amount over the past decade uh, about the role our genes play in human disease. I'm talking about germline inherited variants that have been passed on through generations. Um, they've been found for many common diseases, including prostate cancer. And here I'm talking about these are sequences, changes in our DNA sequence that exist throughout this uh, genome associated with risk of developing disease, but they're appreciably common. They're found in many individuals. Um, and alone, they're not predictive of risk because they only are associated with small increases in risk. Um, however, in aggregate, uh, you know, a composite of uh, all of these variants is important and can tell you something very uh, informative um, about someone's overall risk of disease. And when we aggregate them together, we put them together in the form of a polygenic risk score, where the risk is determined for an individual based on the number of variants um, that exist and been discovered for a specific disease or trait, their frequency in the population, whether somebody carries it or not and the associated relative risk for each of those variants, which I indicated is relatively small. However, an aggregate could be uh, associated with appreciable risk. And so this just highlights this distribution of risk that may be observed in a population with some people having a score that places them at very high risk of disease um, and others having scores that place them at much lower risk. See, and Chris, this is looking at right. hundreds and hundreds of letters of the DNA code, right, across the genome. Right? Exactly. And so this is a, a score that can now be calculated for any given uh, disease or trait and used to assign people to different categories of risk based on their genetic makeup. And just one interesting thing that we have noticed when comparing these polygenic scores 
um, across different diseases, um, such as here heart disease, colorectal cancer, breast cancer, diabetes, um, and prostate cancer, is that the polygenic score for prostate cancer is really quite unique and does a much better job of identifying men at very high risk of, of disease. You know, something that is, is important to understand about polygenic risk scores, we've noticed when comparing them between populations, they're quite different. Um, so, for example, men of African ancestry have a substantially higher genetic risk of developing prostate cancer compared to men of European ancestry. I think an important question is now we have a better risk prediction tool uh, that we have a stronger starting point for applying now preventative and or screening measures to those at high risk to see if we can now begin to reduce disparities in both the incidence and, and mortality of prostate cancer between different uh, populations. This is a very, very important part of the future of population science for diseases um, in terms of where your great-great-great-grandparents came from in terms of disease risk. We can do a much better job of telling a man what their lifetime risk is based on their genetic information. If we incorporate family history, we incorporate other biomarkers, I think we'll get even further stratification of uh, men's risk of developing disease. So I, I think the, the really important question um, regarding polygenic risk and polygenic risk scores is how are we going to use this information clinically to improve health? Uh, this is the big challenge in the field. You know, by 2025 or so, I do expect that the polygenic risk scores will be generated and available for a whole host of diseases, um, will be used by physicians and patients to guide and inform either changes in their lifestyle behaviors to prevent the disease, if those are available, or for risk stratified uh, screening. So disease can be discovered earlier uh, before it becomes untreatable. And I, and I think this is conceptually very similar to what we've already been talking about, about how to treat cancer. Patients right. moving away from this convention, one size fits all approach um, right. for more pers personalized approaches to treatment. And I think now it's time to think about how this personalized approach can also be applied to prevention and screening that may right. be applied differentially based on one's level of risk and maybe important for some diseases or some cancers where the harm benefit ratio of a preventive measure, the harm benefit ratio of a screening tool is being questioned. We've talked about precision medicine, precision radiotherapy, genomics, epigenomics, and now we are talking about precision screening, big data um, management. Anyway, the um, polygenic risk score is uh, going to be, we think, incredibly important in the future of human health and certainly in prostate cancer. Deborah Shear is the executive advisor to the Secretary of the Veterans Administration, and Deborah leads the Center for Strategic Partnerships and has been an extraordinary American citizen for the, improving the care of veterans. The VA is the nation's leader now in trying to bring all this uh, precision care to every patient. Thank you, Jonathan. What you have created is truly an extraordinary community here. It's, you know, if you were just funding researchers, that would be fantastic. But what you have also done, you know, in a very short period of time, this partnership was launched in 2016. Right now, there are 12 centers of excellence. We think very quickly with your help, there are going to be 20 centers of excellence. And why is that important? We have really built a community of researchers who are bringing best-in-class precision oncology to veterans across the country and are using that platform not just for 
prostate cancer innovation, but today for COVID innovation as well. There are 9 million veterans served by the VA. Uh, A third of them live in rural communities. About 22% of veterans are minorities. About 10% of veterans are women and a tremendously growing population. And before the Prostate Cancer Foundation launched this partnership, each of these centers were doing work on their own. And it wasn't until we had the momentum and the support and the guidance from the Prostate Cancer Foundation that we could really build this nationwide network. It used to be if you wanted to open a clinical trial at the VA, you had to go to every single center individually and go through every single center's IRB and then consent every single center's patients. Thanks to the incredible work of Dr. Rachel Ramoni, who leads the Office of Research and Development at the VA and in partnership with the Prostate Cancer Foundation, who has helped us knock down some barriers and put in some very important infrastructure, um, we now have a central IRB. We even have a relationship with a commercial IRB. Um, And whereas it used to take over a year to open a clinical trial, Um, We have a great story that one of the COVID clinical trials opened in five days. So you're really seeing tremendous transformation of a government organization that has the scale to truly make a difference in some of the most challenging medical problems. There are 50,000 veterans who are diagnosed with cancer every year in the VA. 12,000 of those are prostate cancer about 3,000 have already been sequenced. And this is starting almost from zero. And so it's really bringing state-of-the-art care to the VA. In many ways, the partnership has brought the VA more into the national conversation about where innovation is taking place and helped us stay current and helped the rest of the medical community stay current on the insights that the VA is generating. So if you think about the evolution of philanthropy, you had Mike Milken thinking about partnering with a government agency in 2016, which many of you may have thought was a crazy idea, and now has built this incredibly powerful platform where we can enroll large numbers of veterans in clinical trials and develop insights that really transform care across America. And now we have that same government agency committing its own funding to truly scale. So it's just been a tremendously exciting time at the VA. Deborah, you want to talk about how it scaled also to lung cancer and breast cancer, but the idea was always prostate cancer was the number one cancer. So start there, but the model can be applied to every form of human cancer. Right. So building off of these centers of excellence, the VA has announced its own internal contest to stand up 10 centers of excellence around lung cancer. And the, uh, the VA has its first female deputy secretary this year, Pam Powers, and she has made women's oncology one of her priorities, and she has, keeps pointing to the Prostate Cancer Center of Excellence and says, why can't we have one of these for women on, women's oncology as well? And there's no reason why we can't. And so there is a, a plan in formation to hire a director of women's oncology and to start to build out the same platform for centers of excellence around that area as well. One last thing, Deborah. 
the electronic health record has become a huge asset for COVID-19 research. Um, it's a huge big data asset for cancer research. Do you just want to talk for a moment about why is the VA's electronic health record so advantageous in fighting COVID? The VA was actually the first uh, health system in the country to have an electronic medical record. They created their own and built it up over many years. And so we follow veterans from the time they leave the service to the time they leave this earth. So you can really track patients across their lifetime, track comorbidities, they stay within the system. And we pride ourselves on treating the whole person. Um, so you have a very robust data platform to learn from and to make decisions around as we treat these challenging diseases. It's been a very exciting time for us and we've just been grateful for the partnership. Mike, I thought you wanted to make some observations as well. I would. So I just have a few takeaways I want to leave with everyone. Maybe 15% of all lung cancer patients who have advanced smoking-related induced lung cancer today are surviving substantially longer, and we might be using the word cured because of work done by the Prostate Cancer Foundation. Within a decade, we might not be talking about disease-specific. We might be just talking about mutations. Work that we began in 1995 with Jim Allison won a Nobel Prize in medicine. 17 forms of human cancers today are now getting this checkpoint therapy. The outcome for cancer patients has improved dramatically. And the future is in using data that you saw today to analyze many of these issues. In closing, I, I want to just comment very briefly on the importance of the VA. First largest medical record that we can access to the idea that this program we launched in 16, uh, that if you serve the country of the United States, that you will have equal access to cancer care. The only place now that you have the same outcomes for African-American men as you do for the general population is now in the VA. And so this program has enormous promise. And I want to just comment again how uniquely positioned this is and how our promise to veterans who have served, whether they're young or whether they're old, has come to bear here, which will affect and benefit all humans. So thank you for joining us. All the best and good health to you. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or MilkenInstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.